I'd ask you to please stand with me out of reverence for our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. And uh, this morning we're going to be focusing on Romans 1, 18 to, to 23, but I'm actually going to, uh, I'm actually going to, going to spring this on you, no pun intended. Um, we're actually going to, I'm going to actually read all the way down to the end of the chapter. So uh, Romans 1, 18 to 32. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their own hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise give up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since God did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know that those, sorry, that there are no God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of our Lord. May he rise eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word and your special revelation as it proclaims your general or your natural revelation, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will open the eyes of our hearts to see you, especially in your word, but also that you'll open our, our eyes to see you in your creation. We praise you, Lord, that you have given this knowledge of yourself generously to every single person on the planet. And yet, Lord, we know that people in their fallen state will reject the knowledge of you, even though they know it, they, they intentionally and willfully deny it. They willfully and intentionally deny you. And I pray, Heavenly Father, as, as I'm confident in the power of your Holy Spirit is in, and among the vast majority of us here, that you have opened the eyes of our hearts, that we would see you with the eyes of faith in the, the revelation, especially the revelation of Jesus Christ in your word. We praise you, and, and Lord, we pray also through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would, uh, that you would open spiritual eyes and those who are, are currently still in their rebellion and unbelief, that they may see, see Jesus Christ for who he is, that they would turn from their sin and would receive him and worship him as Lord and Savior. For we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. 
If someone were to ask you, what do you want first? The bad news or the good news? What would you say? I mean, most of us are, are bad news first people. I'm also a bad news first person because I want to get the bad news out of the way so we can get on then to the good news. Well, Paul is a bad news first kind of person. He did briefly discuss the, jo- the gospel in his thesis statement in verses 16 and 17, but he's going to spend two whole chapters focusing on the bad news from Romans 118 to chapter 3, verse 20, before turning to discuss the good news of the gospel from Romans 3, 21 and following. Paul is demonstrating here that just as the gospel is the power of God for salvation, for the Jew, for the salvation of Jew and Gentile, the rejection of the gospel is bad news. Before you can grasp the glory of the good news, you need to get a handle on the horror of of the bad news. And it's really bad news. In fact, there is no worse news. And it's not just really bad news for a few really bad people. It's really bad news for everybody because everybody is really bad. People may try to justify themselves or to compare themselves with people around them. What Paul says here silences every objection and proves that the whole human race is guilty before the holy God and justly deserving of his holy wrath. So after briefly introducing the revelation of God's saving righteousness, Paul thoroughly describes the revelation of God's wrath. Paul is proving, again, that the entire human race, Jew and Gentile alike, is under God's righteous wrath for rejecting God's general revelation. Now briefly, general revelation refers to the revelation to all people that comes from God that he exists. God has revealed himself and his existence in some key ways to all people. Now, general revelation is sometimes referred to as natural revelation because we look at creation and we look at ourselves as his creatures and we see the very fingerprints of God. Specifically, as Paul says here, we see God's eternal power and divine nature. And we also see that we are guilty and deserving of God's judgment for denying him and for sinning against him. So this morning we're going to see how how natural revelation leads to the revelation of God's wrath. And next week, Lord willing, we'll see the, the rejection of natural revelation leads to unnatural desires, which leads to natural consequences. So in verse 18, we'll see the revealing of the wrath of God. In verses 19 to 23, the reason for the wrath of God. And then next week, Lord willing, from verses 24 to 32, the result of the wrath of God. Now, I borrowed that alliteration from Rob Ventura's commentary. He's an alliteration aficionado, and he's adept at it. There's a little alliteration for you, which most people probably miss. This week, we're going to see in, in verses 18 to 23 how Paul shows us that God's wrath is revealed upon all unbelievers because they've rejected God's clear revelation of himself to all people in creation. 
They have rejected God and they have turned to idols. Again, the next week, Lord willing, from verses 24 to 32, we'll see that Paul shows us how God has given over those who have rejected him to sexual deviancy and all kinds of other sins. So first of all, verse 18, the revealing of the wrath of God. As way of refresher, remember in verses 16 and 17, Paul wondrously declared, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for our salvation, for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God that is imputed to the people who put their faith in God. The people who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ is credited to their account and is received by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. This is for salvation and life to all people who believe, both Jew and Gentile or both Jew and Greek. The gospel is a revelation of God's righteousness for salvation. But then in verse 18, Paul abruptly changes direction to speak of the revelation of God's wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul goes from the wonderful revelation of God's saving grace to the horrific revelation of God's wrath. It is enough to give you spiritual whiplash. People don't like talking about the wrath of God. And I get it, it is an uncomfortable subject. But we must deal with the subject because it is part of the whole counsel of God's word. Mainstream evangelicalism is characterized by a focus on God's love and a willful ignorance of God's wrath. And this produces a domino effect. The price of diluting God's wrath is diminishing our understanding of God's holiness. Without an appreciation of God's holiness, we lose a reverent fear of the Lord. Sinners do not need to, to feel the need to come to Christ for forgiveness. And without a reverent fear of the Lord, sin abounds, even in the church. And the church loses her effectiveness in reflecting God's glory. And so we miss the depth of the relationship that we can have with the Lord as we fail to mortify the deeds of the flesh, and this in turn robs us of our joy. But what is the wrath of God? You know, when we think of, of wrath, we, th- we think of somebody losing their temper, just going ballistic and, and being out of control. God gets angry. God gets very angry. God's anger is unparalleled. But God's anger is never out of control. God never sins in the outpouring of his anger. Theologian RVG Tasker says the wrath of God is an affectus as well as an effectus. It is a quality of the nature of God as also an attitude of the mind of God towards evil. London Baptist Confession states that God is without passions, yet the Bible clearly teaches that God is angry with sinners. Aquinas is helpful here in our understanding of how God can be angry, yet without passions, for Aquinas asserts that anger is not said to be in God, an allusion to any passion of the mind, but the judgment or decision of his justice. 
The anger or the wrath of God is a result of God's justice and is ju- and the justice that he must pour out against sin, against all sin. In other words, God is not ruled by his passions for his wrath is the righteous willed response to sin. J.I. Packer wrote in his excellent book, Knowing God, that God's wrath is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to, to objective moral evil. D.A. Carson adds that it is an entirely reasonable and will response to offenses against his holiness. And so God's wrath is a necessary response, a necessary outflow of his attribute of justice. God is committed to his holiness. And so rather than diminish his holiness, God's wrath is because of his commitment to holiness. It's a natural and necessary response. John Owen defines God's wrath as a constant and immutable will in God of avenging and punishing by just punishment every injury, transgression, and sin. And in our minds, we think about the, the wrath of God. We, we see it as, it doesn't compute that we see it as an, as an oxymoron that God can be, keep on the one hand, full of, of wrath and anger over sin. And then somehow at the same time, that God can be loving and merciful and gracious. But without wrath, God's love and mercy and grace are are diminished. For without wrath, there is no need for mercy, thus mitigating the depths of God's love. Again from RVG Tasker. God's love is inseparably connected with his holiness and his justice. He must therefore manifest anger with confronted with sin and evil. But why is Paul turning to discuss God's wrath here? Some commentators suggest that Paul is saying that the revelation of God's wrath reveals his righteousness in judgment, the other side of the coin of the revelation of God's righteousness in granting salvation. In other words, they're saying that the righteousness of God consists in both his saving and his judging righteousness. Now that's true. God's righteousness does consist of his saving and judging righteousness. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. It, it really changes the point of verse 17. Rather, I believe that Paul is saying that God's righteousness is revealed in his wrath upon those who have not received the imputation of his righteousness. That it is only those who have received the imputation of, of Christ's righteousness that are, can truly be considered righteous. Everybody else is unrighteous and deserving of his holy and just Wrath. The conjunction four in verse 18 is the answer to the question that Paul's statement in verse 17 raises. As Doug Moo explains, the implicit question is why has God manifested his righteousness and why can it be appropriated only through faith? Paul's statement in verse 18 really summarizes the answer that he's going to expound all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. That the reason that, it, that, that righteousness can only be and salvation can only come through faith is because everybody apart from faith is unrighteous. 
In fact, even believers are unrighteous. But they have been credited with the righteousness of God as God has, has imputed the righteousness of Christ to them. And then through the work of the gospel, their, their lives will be increasingly righteous through, through progressive sanctification. Salvation and the righteousness of God only comes upon those who have faith because unbelievers suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because all unbelievers, every one of them, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so this statement here is, is calculated. Paul is saying this very intentionally through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to shock people to seeing the reality of the spiritual condition of those who have not trusted Christ. And hopefully through the work of the Holy Spirit to shock unbelievers into seeing their spiritual condition now that they may turn to Christ in repentance and faith. God's anger at unrepentant sinners ultimately takes the form of eternal damnation. This is testified throughout the scriptures. Yet Paul says, he says here that God's wrath is revealed. So he's saying that God's wrath is not just for the future, that God's wrath is now. It's right now. Unbelievers are under God's wrath right now. They're experiencing God's wrath right now. Though the full weight of God's wrath will not be experienced and, and will not be revealed until to them upon the day of, until the day of judgment, God's wrath is revealed in the present upon all unbelievers. This applies as well to the elect that are not yet regenerate. According to Ephesians 2.3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's the, the people that are discussed later on in the chapter. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As chapter 11 of the, the London Baptist Confession states, God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they're not personally justified till the Holy Spirit in, in due time, in time due, actually applies Christ to them. So election took place before the foundation of the world, but salvation takes place in time. And until that time that, that you were regenerated and came to faith in Christ, even though you were foreknown by God before the foundation of the world and set apart for, for salvation, until that time you were living under God's wrath. That's what, what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 2. So unbelievers are not reserved for the wrath of God, but they remain under the wrath of God until they're actually saved. The elect are not the vessels of wrath that Paul speaks of in Romans 9.22. In 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Paul says, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, as we'll see quite often, the, the, the elect's experience of this aspect of God's wrath it's one of the means whereby God draws them to, them, to himself. I'm sure many of you can testify of the, the time prior to coming to faith that you realized that, that you were living as an enemy of God. 
when you, you saw from, from God's moral law that, that you were, were completely in utter rebellion against him and deserving of his wrath. And for many, that's, that's the precursor before them realizing the need for Christ and by the power of the Spirit repenting and coming to faith in Christ. Here in verse 18, Paul also tells us from whence God's wrath is revealed. Is revealed from heaven. And so this, this adds to the picture of the, the magnitude of God's wrath. God sees every sin and his wrath is being poured out presently from the very throne room of Almighty God. God sees every single sin. Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now some commentators say that that ungodliness describes sin against God and unrighteousness describes sin against other people, that the, the two tables of the Ten Commandments are in view, the first four dealing with sin against God and the final six dealing with sin against man, summed up in the, in the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor yourself. And that's, they're saying that, that ungodliness and unrighteousness refer, refer to those two things. Now that's possible, but I see it more as, as two words that describe aspects of the same rebellion. That, that ungodliness and unrighteousness are, are evident in, in all unbelievers. And so all sin, every single bit of it, every single bit of that rebellion, even peccadilloes, the so-called small sins, must be punished by God. And so who is in view here? Paul has just said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So we think from a, a symmetrical point of view that he's now saying that this, this damnation, or this judgment, sorry, not damnation, this wrath of God is experienced by, by all Jews and Gentiles. And that's true, it is. The, the, the entire human race apart from Christ, is under, the revel is, is under the wrath of God and they are the revelation of the wrath of God. And although the, the case can be made that, that Paul here is, is dealing, is focusing with, on Gentiles because the, the types of, of idolatry and immorality that he's going on to discuss in the rest of the chapter were really, were, were quite rare in Jewish culture at that time, but they were ubiquitous in Gentile culture. Where these, these forms of, of immorality and, and idolatry were just rampant in the culture, much as they are in our culture today. So you could say that the focus is on Gentiles, and, and, and you could also notice the fact that Paul is going to turn to address the Jews, specifically in chapter 2, in the middle of chapter 2. But I believe the effect here is that Paul is indicting the Gentiles first, and then as, as Tom Schreiner says, while the Jews are saying, Amen, he indicts them too. That the, there is a symmetry, that he's saying everybody apart from Christ is under the wrath of God. Unbelieving Jew and unbelieving Gentile alike are under God's wrath. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles were under his wrath. Brothers and sisters, we were under God's wrath. 
And so this is, this is the, the, great, the great leveling place that Jew and Gentile have nothing to boast about. None of us have anything to boast about because we were all under God's wrath. All of us had actually been engaging in sin. And I think it's very easy for, for some people to, to focus on the, in the, when we see the, the revelation of God's wrath and the results of it um, in the, the latter part of the chapter, we, we focus on, the, the, on, on certain aspects of the sin. We focus on the, the sexual morality that's evident and forgetting that the, that last paragraph, that's all of us. It was all of us prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Even someone who came to faith as a, as a young child. Disobedient to parents, does that ring a bell, anybody? So it's everybody. Such were all of you. Everyone's in view. Jew, Gentile, elect, non-elect. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of all men and all women. And the news gets worse. Because everybody knows it. Paul is going to prove with the rest of the chapter that they know God. In fact, in verse 32, Paul says that, that they even know that those who practice this sin deserve to die as part of God's righteous judgment. Yet they continue to pursue sin. They continue to take pleasure in those who pursue these sins. They continue to pursue intentional ignorance. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's like I show the kids during the, the children's time. People, people try to put the truth into a box. And then they sit on the box, trying to keep the lid shut. But they know what's in there. They know the truth is there. And they can try as they might. They can shut their eyes tight. They can put their fingers in their ears. They can say, I don't see. I don't hear. But they know in their heart that it's true. And the rebellion is willful against Almighty God. Okay, that's verse 18. Move a little bit more quickly now. Verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20 reveal that not only do people suppress the truth, but they are subject to God's wrath and culpable for their situation. Because what can be known about God is plain to them. Why is it plain? Because God has shown it to them. God in his, in, in his love has actually shown himself to humanity. And how do he show it to them? Through his creation. Now Paul here isn't saying that everything about God is, is plain through creation. It's not plain through, through general revelation. Everything about God is not plain through general revelation or natural revelation. It's not even plain through special revelation at times. Obviously things like the Trinity are not plain from, from natural revelation. The scriptures clearly teach that God is, is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet, yet doctrine is not clear to our finite fallen minds. Paul is saying here that, that, that general or natural revelation, which is available to all, clearly reveals that God exists. 
Got to find general revelation earlier as the revelation to all people that God exists. It's general because it is in general for the whole human race. And it's, it's visible, it's made known, it's revealed, especially through creation, which again is often referred to as natural revelation because it is, it is revealed to us through what God has created, including ourselves. Special revelation, on the other hand, is not available to all. It refers to the scriptures and to the supremely special revelation of Jesus Christ. Please turn with me to Psalm 19. It's the, the passage that, that Seth read to us this morning during the call to worship. Psalm 19. The first half of Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6 deal with, with general revelation or with, with natural revelation. Right? Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Okay? It proclaims to everyone the glory of God. Now the second half, verses 7 to 14, deal with special revelation with the Scriptures. Verse 7-8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, and so on. Dealing with what is, with what is seen in God's Word. Where these things are enumerated for us. So what we're seeing here is that, is that general revelation is available to everybody, especially in creation, the testimony that God has made all things. And this is what the focus, what Paul's focus is here. In verse 20, Paul explains what about God is revealed in creation. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So we're seeing here in creation God's eternal power and divine nature. We see God's omnipotence, God's timeless and limitless power on display in creation. We also see God's deity in display on creation, that he is the infinite, eternal, unchangeable, holy God. And everybody knows it. Paragraph 1 of chapter 22 in the Second London Baptist Confession, we talked about this this morning during Sunday school, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. Like I said to the kids, you look at a tree, especially something big and, and majestic like a sequoia, and you know they didn't make it itself. You could, you could, some of say, my kids said, we're talking about this during our family worship a couple days ago. They said, well, well, it came from a seed. And Jane's response was, well, who made the seed? Where did the seed come from? That, that seed that has all of the genetic information of the giant sequoia is in that little seed. No matter how far back you go, the only place you can go is back to God. Likewise, if you, you look at an ant, a living creature, yeah, you might think of an ant to be, as something to be stepped on, especially if it's in your kitchen. But you know that that ant did not make itself. 
And what about a blue whale? You look at that creature and you think, God's amazing. God made that. And everybody knows it. Let alone if you look at a newborn baby. This human being made in the image of God. And you know that that child did not make itself. You know, if you could say, well, its parents made it. No, they didn't. Then what about their parents? Nope. Again, the only place to go is back to God. We are all made in the image of God. Yet through the fall, sin entered the human race through Adam, our federal head. And so the image of God upon us was effaced, but not entirely erased. Calvin says that the image of God is found in man's soul, not totally annihilated by the fall, but frightfully deformed. So all human beings know that God exists, yet they reject him. And for that, all human beings know that they are guilty. Again, from chapter 22, paragraph 1 of chapter 22 of the London Baptist Confession. Continues, the light of nature reveals that God is just and good and does good unto all. and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. And again, everybody knows it. They know that God is good and must be worshipped. Matthew 5.45, for God makes his sun shine on the sunrise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so in this we see God's power, we see God's provision, and we know that the only appropriate response to God's power and God's provision is humble worship. And everybody knows it. So everybody is without excuse. The, the, word, the word that is without excuse here literally means that they're without a word. There's nothing to say. Creation has silenced them. In verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The Reformation Study Bible is helpful here. Humanity's sin is the individual refusal to acknowledge what is already known to be true. While knowing God, people refused to honor him as God or give thanks to him. The consequence of rejecting God was that their mind and their hearts grew dark. They knew God. They had knowledge of God but they denied him. They rejected him. We saw this in Acts chapter 17, verses 23 to 25, where, where Paul is on the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and he's, he's, he's doing apologetics with the Greek philosophers. Verses 23 to 25 says, And for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord in heaven, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself is giving to man, gives to man, all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul is doing apologetics. He's showing the Greek philosophers that they know that God exists. As R.C. Sproul says, the problem with man is not so much a lack of knowledge of God as it is a refusal to acknowledge God. 
Agnostics are those who say that they do not believe it is possible to know whether or not God exists. The word agnostic means against knowledge. But Paul here states clearly that they do have knowledge. There's no such thing as an agnostic. To take it a step further, atheists claim that God does not exist. However, they can't even describe what they claim to be without invoking the name of God. Atheist means against God. What an appropriate title. But in reality, there is no such thing as an atheist. Only anti-theists. The so-called agnostic says to God, I can't know whether or not you exist. The so-called atheist says to God, you don't exist. And God says to the agnostic and to the atheist, you don't exist. You're not really what you claim to be. The evidence for God is universal and clear. Everyone knows who God is. And everyone knows what it means that he exists. We know we're all guilty. Justly condemned before the holy God. Listen to Leon Morris. Our condemnation in each case lies in the fact that we have sinned against the light and we have the light we have, not against the light we have never received. Thus, though the Gentiles did not receive the full revelation of the law of the Old Testament, they did receive enough illumination to know what was right and they followed the wrong. Again, it gets worse. Paul is really laying it down here, really showing the, the, the badness of the bad news. It gets worse again in verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They claim to be wise. But God says they are fools. Psalm 14.1 and 53.1 say that the, the fool in his heart says there is no God. The knowledge uh, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. Without the fear of God, you don't have any true knowledge or any true wisdom. It is intellectual arrogance. The, the Greek word for fool here is, is the word from which we get the word moron. Some of the people who claim to be the smartest people in the world are, by this definition, morons. Colossians 1, 2, and 3 says, All the riches of full assurance of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want true wisdom and true knowledge, look to Christ. Children, if you were here this morning as a believer, as one who's trusting in Jesus Christ, you are far wiser than, than the, the so-called wise people who think they're running the show. And the intellectual elites are fools because they're consciously denying God and consciously rejecting God. 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant, 
who is widely regarded as one of the most influential philosophers in the history of Western philosophy, famously wrote in the introduction to his book, Critique of Pure Reason, I had to deny knowledge in order to make room for faith. Essentially, he believed that human beings cannot know. They cannot know transcendent entities, especially God, through our senses, and that reason cannot supply such knowledge. In other words, he denied general revelation. Yet Paul says exactly the opposite. He says that God has revealed his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature in the things that have been made. If Paul is right, and he is, then can't can't be right. To press the pun a little further, if Paul is right, then can't can't. And even to go a little further, his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, was something that he denied. So for can't, Emmanuel can't be. You never forget the name of Emmanuel can't. But it's not just can't. It's everybody. It's everybody everywhere. I would argue that, that it's actually Augustine who was one of the greatest philosophers who's influenced Western thought. And he saw, he saw the idea of rationality as, as faith-seeking understanding. And he recognized that this had to come through, through the knowledge of God, especially and most profoundly in special revelation and most clearly and powerfully in the special revelation of Jesus Christ. that this kind of anti-God thinking is truly a global pandemic. And it's not just today. It's been the case all the way back since the very beginning with the fall. And we see this really, don't we, in, in, in many of the religions of the world. We see this in, in Roman Catholicism, how they have rejected, again, it gets worse, because they've not only denied God, but they've now made something and said, this is God. Right? We, we see this with, with the golden calf. Remember at the, at the, at the base of, of the mountain, when, when Moses is up on the mountain getting revelation from God with the Ten Commandments, the people are down there worshiping this golden calf that they had made. And they said, these are the gods that, le- that brought you out of Egypt. These pagan gods are the ones who delivered you. And people are still doing it today in Roman Catholicism. I, w- I was talking during the Sunday school this morning about, about how during my studies I had to go in and visit a, 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 a religious service from outside of Orthodoxy, so I went to a Roman Catholic church. And I arrived early, and, and with my notepad, I was taking notes, and I, <coughs> I watched as people were falling in. There was a, a, a statue of Mary on one side, and a statue that was supposed to be of Jesus on the other side, and people were filing in, and and at least nine out of ten people went and kissed the feet of the statue of Mary and ignored the statue of Jesus. Now, I know that wasn't really Jesus. It made a graven image, directly in contravention of God's law. But they're worshiping, worshiping images that they had made. Worshiping the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And you see this throughout the world religions with with their idols that they bow down to and try to serve a a God that they have made. It's foolishness. The the, the woodsman 
takes a, a branch and he, 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 he cuts it down and he, he takes it and, he, and with part of it he, he, he cooks it and makes his food and the other half he carves it into an idol and he bows and worships the idol that he made. So in reality, when he made the idol, he made a God in his own image. So his idolatry is self-worship. Like Michael Card sings in his song, it's, we, we've made God our image, so our faith is idolatry. And we need to be very careful not just to say that's out there in the world religions. We need to recognize, as Calvin said, that the human heart is a factory of idols. That we are constantly creating idols and, and bowing down to these things that we have made that become functional gods in our lives. And the result, the ultimate result of this is death. The end of these things is death. And Paul is saying here to the Roman Christians, the Jew and Gentile, that you were on the road to death. And that road to death is going to talk about in, in verses 24 to the end of the chapter. That news gets a lot worse as, that, as they continue in pursuing sin and God gives them over. God's saying, you don't want me? Here. I'll give you over to what you want. And just watch how debauched and how wicked your life becomes. We can just look out the doors and we can see that increasing in the culture all around us. It's everywhere. It's not, it's not new. It goes back to the fall. And we need to recognize that we are all, even those among us who are regenerate, we still feel the pull to those idols. We want something tangible. We want something that can provide for us immediate gratification. We want something we can see and touch and feel. So even we who have been set free from idolatry so easily fall back into it again. Rob Venturian's commentary says that man's aversion to God led to his diversion from God, which ultimately led to his perversion before God. Again, that's, that's the bad news. And again, it's going to get worse. So we'll see that the rejection of natural revelation leads to unnatural desires and to natural consequences for those unnatural desires. And so here, if, if, if this passage was to be the end, this would be horrific. We could tool chapters of this before we finally get to, to verse 21 of, of chapter 3. Please read ahead. Unbelievers are left with no excuse. We, apart from Christ, were left with no excuse. But unbelievers can't take the next step. All that general revelation or, 
well, not all, but one of the main things we see in, in general revelation and natural revelation is that leads to condemnation. It actually, so that nobody can say on the day of judgment, I didn't know. God will say, you did know. You do know. R.C. Sproul talks about someone, a student in his class, saying, well, what happened to the, to the, the poor, innocent native in Africa who never heard? And Sproul said, nothing happened to the poor, innocent native in Africa who never heard. He said, because the poor, innocent native in Africa who never heard doesn't exist. Because nobody's innocent. There is no innocent native. There's no innocent anybody. And natural revelation proves that. Because even, even those who have heard the gospel, even those who have the, the benefit of special revelation, they have the benefit of, of hearing the gospel, some of the children among us who, who have heard the gospel day in, day out, year in, year out, and their families still persist in rejection of God. That adds to their accountability. What has to happen is the regeneration of the heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray, kids, we pray for you that you will, will see and hear the, the glories of Christ through our lips and through the way we live our lives, that you will see your need for Christ and that you will also come to saving faith in him. Another word here to, to believers. Even as the indictment here <clears throat> was that unbelievers know God's eternal power and divine nature, that yet they do not give thanks to God or honor God. We need to recognize that quite often we do not give thanks to God or honor God when we see creation. We're talking about this as well this, this morning in, in Sunday school. I would encourage you to, to really intentionally, when, when you look at creation, to remember the Creator. Because you see it and know it not just from, from what you see out there, but what you see in here as well. So the next time you, you go for a walk or next time you look out your window, when you, when you see the autumn leaves, when you see a flake of snow, knowing that, that there are no two snowflakes that are alike, you're seeing the fingerprints of God. Honor him, give thanks to him for the glories of his creation. When you see the flowers blooming in the spring, when you, you feel the, the warmth of the sun shining in your face in the summertime, when you see the, the, the power of a thunderstorm, honor God as God and give thanks to God as God. Next, next time you look at your kids, next time you look in the mirror, May all of, all of it be a catalyst to giving honor and thanks to God. Yeah, because we don't just have natural revelation, we have special revelation that reinforces these things to our minds and our hearts through the power of the Spirit. 
We need special revelation to overcome. We need the revelation of the gospel. We need the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we continually need the revelation of the gospel. We continually need the revelation of Jesus Christ because we recognize that we all fall woefully short. We recognize who God is. And in some respects, we who know are, are more culpable because of the truth that has been revealed to us. So if anyone doesn't have an excuse, we don't have an excuse. But brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has paid for that. He has paid for your lack of worship. He has paid for your lack of thanksgiving. When he suffered on the cross, the Father poured out all of his wrath on his Son in your place. There's no more wrath for you. Because Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs for you. And he gives you, instead of just an empty cup, he gives you a cup that is overflowing with his blessings. In a few moments, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We are going to eat the bread that is a picture, a wonderful picture of the body of Jesus Christ, of the, the sinless Savior who suffered as a, a sinner for you. And of that cup, that is a picture of his blood that was shed for you, for your sins, for the sins that you continue to commit every day. The cross is the clearest testimony of the wrath of God that the world has ever seen. Far more than, than the wrath of, of God in giving people over to their sin. Far more than the wrath that was poured out on Egypt during the Exodus, even in the Passover. Far more than the flood. The wrath of God is seen most clearly and most powerfully in the cross. Through the power of the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. We've been regenerated. We've been born again. And we've been made to see the glory of God in a way that the, the eyes of the unbeliever could never see. We're now no longer under Adam. We are in Christ. He is our federal head. Earlier we, we sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Verse 4, I wish we sang it, is it, perfect here. Adam's image now effaced. Stamp thine image in its place. Final Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. The image of God is being restored in us through Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. May we be those who recognize and praise God and worship God and give thanks to God through, yes, through his, his natural general revelation, but especially through his special revelation. Let's pray together. Our glorious God, our 
Heavenly Savior, we praise you for your many, many blessings that you have showered upon us in Jesus Christ. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for all that you have done for us in accomplishing our salvation for us. We praise you, Lord, that, that, that we knew that before we ever heard even the name of Christ. Because of your grace and your mercy. And yet, Lord, in your providence, you sent someone to share the gospel with us so that we would see the, the, and behold Christ with the eyes of faith again through the power of your Spirit. Help us, Lord, to see who you are and help us to worship you for who you are in all that you have done in your creation and especially what you've done through the cross of Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.